Well, as I mentioned, we're in a series on Romans 1 and 2 for the fall called Concerning Jesus. Because Paul wants to make sure that the Roman church understands the true love of God in Jesus Christ. And we've seen that throughout the first chapter. And it's very important that we understand this whole conversation of 18 to 32 in chapter 1. And all of chapter 2 is in light of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. In other words, the just shall live by faith. As he had said in verse 117. It's imperative that we understand that. Because if not, all you're going to see is harshness, judgmentalism, and you'll say, ah, that's just Paul. No, what you'll see is it's the whole counsel of God. And it's important for us because last week we learned of God's judgment against those who are guilty of the irreligious lifestyle. You, you heard the list. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and just read 18 to 32 of chapter 1 or listen to the sermon that we posted up on SoundCloud. It's, it's a mess. It's everything we Christians really don't necessarily want to be. And it's God has declared that they, verse 20, are guilty and worthy of death and without excuse. And a Jewish believer, imagine the church in Rome, first century. You know, there are now Jewish believers in Jesus Christ sitting on one half of the church. And on the other half are all these Gentile Roman believers. And the Jews hear that read. What do you think is going through their mind? Yeah, that's right. Go get them. You know, boom, you know, is what they're thinking. Many of them would. But you know, how many Christians today would have heard that list read and you say, yeah, that's the way the unbelievers are. They deserve it. Well, Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 2, then turns to the Jewish believers in Rome who had a revelation of God, and he wants to make sure that they understand, although they're clean living, morally upright, sweet-smelling, law-abiding, they are legalistic, conceited, they boast of their goodness and they wrap themselves in pride and they're just as bankrupt before God and no less guilty than the irreligious among them. And so it's important that as we do this and we look at this text this morning, what we're going to see is God's judgment on judgmental people. Two, we're going to see that God shows no favorites. And three, that he is 100% fair. All right? Those are three things. All right? God's judgment on judgmental people. Two, that God shows no favorites. And three, he's 100% fair. Let's look at this together. I hope you'll open up with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you do not have your Bible, you'll see on the back we have all 16 verses of chapter 2 laid out for you. So the first thing is that we see that he is judgmental on people who are judgmental. Just as millions of judgmental Christians are today think they're going to get by because they're good people and God must certainly forgive them well millions in the Jewish nation in this first century obviously felt that way for what we see Paul is writing to them this morning but you need to understand something about this particular mindset in Jewish culture in the first century they believed everyone else was going to be judged except the Jewish race a common tradition claimed that Abraham sat at the gate of hell to keep all Jews out. 
The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 12, verse 22, in the Apocrypha has this statement in it. It's true, it's there. So while chastening us, the Jews, thou scourges our enemies 10,000 more. So you could see how a first century Jew would applaud at chapter, eight, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 in Romans. And they would think that they were immune from God's wrath simply because they're Jews. So we can see how a first century Jew would read and hear and think, yeah, that's right, boom, go, Paul. But these judgmental people don't fool God. And Paul reveals that God knows perfectly what their thinking is all about, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, these judgmental people are condemned because they practice the very same things as unbelieving pagans do. For God sees the sin in their hearts that they themselves fail to recognize. First, they see these, these judgmental moralizers do not understand the nature and extent of their own sin. They imagine that they have not actually committed any of the Roman one sins that have been listed and that they are beyond judgment because they're not like those guys. And the truth is, they may not have overtly committed adultery, but it's happened in their thoughts. They don't overtly steal, but in their minds they have. They have not committed murder, but numerous times the mental knife has plunged into another. And God sees all this. He's not deceived by our indulging in our self-righteous delusion by renaming our sin. We do that, you know. See, others lie, we stretch the truth. Others steal, we borrow. Others are prejudiced, we have our convictions. The self-righteous are blind to their own faults, and they don't see that they're doing the same thing for which they condemn others. King David did it. David committed adultery with beautiful Bathsheba to cover up the sin and the fact that she was now pregnant with his child. She had Bathsheba's husband wife killed in combat intentionally, which is an act of murder. So Nathan the prophet comes to him and told the king the tale of a rich man who took a poor man's little sheep, which the poor man loved, and the rich man slaughtered it for his own guests. And David was horrified. David responded, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves his eye. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. What did Nathan say to David? You are the man. The self-righteous easily forgets his own wrongs and feels that others' sins are worse than his own. Secondly, in this, we see that they are judgmental to the extreme. And we can see that in Christian culture today as we look at the sins of our culture, and it's increasingly getting that way. And we need to watch ourselves of it. Because hell will be filled of judgmental goody-goodies. People who 
succumb to the sport of judging. Have you noticed you're never more miserable than you when you're judgmental? You're never more miserable. And there's nothing more destructive to the purpose of the gospel here on the West Shore than a self-righteous, judgmental spirit. Others can smell it on us. They can see it on our face, and it brings nothing but death. It's better for us in our own quiet spirit to say, there but for the grace of God go I. Amen? See, the last characteristic of a judgmental person is that he actually thinks that the kindness and forbearance and patience of God in his life is kind of a divine okay on the course that he has chosen rather than seeing it as a chance for repentance. Because that's what Paul's trying to get to here in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Sometimes God brings him to people to himself through difficulties. They come to the end of the rope and they come to faith in Jesus. But he also draws people to repentance through kindness, forbearance, and patience. So therefore, no one should issue that he's all right with God because life is going easy for him. God calls people through all sorts of seasons of life. When it's seven, sunny, sunny and 75, or when you're going through the hurricanes of life. So now we know that the thinking of these judgmental people, the, the moralizers, the ignorance and blindness of their own sin, their judgmentalism, and their interpreting of God's kindness as approval is not right. We see all this in, through 1 through 4, and that God is not fooled. We saw in Psalm 139 that we prayed this morning that God sees it all. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows the real intention behind every spoken word. God knows instantly and effortlessly everything about us. And so in our eyes, the person that's a good man, very upright and moral, if that person dies without Christ, Christ will say to him, verse 1, you have no excuse. Francis Schaeffer has a great illustration about this reality, is that in our own judging, we will be judged before God. Because without Christ, we have no advocator. We have no mediator. And it's as if there's an MP3 player. We have an MP3 player back there recording the sermon. Just imagine an invisible MP3 player hung around your neck for your entire life. And you're walking around thinking, people should do this, people should do this, people should do this. You ought to live this way, etc. for 75, 80, 90 years, however long God gives you. And you, step, you die, you step before God, and God says, okay, I'm going to be completely fair. I will simply take this recorder off your neck, which you never knew you had, and I'm going to press play. And you will be judged by the way you judge the rest of the world. How would we do? Yikes. Amen. So we see first that God's judgment is absolutely perfect. And he judges those people who judge the irreligious. Friends, why would they act any other ways? They don't know Jesus. Amen? So come on. Let's watch ourselves. And what we'll see in verses 5 to 11 is that he judges everyone, and he doesn't play favorites. Look at verse 5 with me. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In verse 7 and 8, what he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 62. I wrestled, should we pray Psalm 62 together or should we pray Psalm 139 together? It was a toss-up, so I chose Psalm 139. But what's going on in Psalm 62 here in verses 7 and 8 is David is contrasting the irreligious and the religious. All right, The first group, those who plot against the king, who lie, they say one thing and they do opposite in their hearts. You see, those are like the people in verses 1 through 4. The other group finds their rest in God alone. Psalm 62.1 says, They are those who say my salvation and my honor depend upon God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. See, what they have done is to find their salvation in God and to make him the center of their lives. And it's that attitude that surely God will render to each one according to what he has done. Paul is asking both the irreligious and the religious what they have done or not done. And what's been done is verse 5, neither has repented. They're not seeking God refuge. They're hardening their hearts from God, and they deserve God's wrath. Both are seeking honor in themselves. You see, God is not swayed by a little cute face. We imagine that there might be something about us that will persuade God to make an exception. You know, our intelligence, our position, our kindness, our generosity. But apart from the blood of Jesus upon us, God's not impressed. The evidence of God's judgment will be our works. Hear me, okay? This does not mean we are saved by our works. Apples are the evidence that the apple tree is alive. But the roots are what pull in the nourishment and keep the apples growing, right? And what keep it that way. And in the same way, faith in Jesus alone provides new life. A changed life. A life of righteousness and it proves that we have real faith. Luther often said, we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. We change. We love the Lord. We love the unlovable where at once we didn't. We kind of like those Romans 1, 18 to 32 people. Because that's what happens in the person, and therefore we're not judgmental, and therefore we're able to stand in the day of judgment. But it is vital for us to understand that if the works we do are not being changed and informed by the faith that we profess to have, it is right to ask whether our faith is heartfelt and real. So here's what you can ask yourself. Look at verse 7, coming right from Psalm 62. Those who, by patience and well-doing, means that doing good, living in a godly way, has become the norm of the individual's life. And two, to seek for glory and honor and immortality. These are the qualities of a life with God. The person who lives such a life does not do so for their own sake. They live in such a way because they want to become like Jesus in their character. 
And these are good things to seek. And the problem is that we tend to seek them in the created things rather than the creator, which harkens back to the chapter 1. We need to seek where God can be found and be remade in his image, and it gives eternal life. And so verse 8 then gives two indicators that the person is not right with God. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Self-seeking means living a spirit of self-glorification, seeking to be our ruler, our king. I'm the master of my fate type of thoughts. This can be found in the irreligious or the religious person. Two, they don't obey the truth and obey unrighteousness. It means that they're unwilling to be instructed by the word. To learn from God's truth. This is a non-teachable person. So the irreligious do this, and so do the religious. We want to think of ourselves as righteous through law-keeping. But we're willing to listen how God wants us to live, but we ignore his word when he tells us that we must keep it perfectly. And none of us can keep it perfectly. And what we need to be given is that righteousness that we cannot earn. If we think that we can save ourselves, we reject the truths much as we think we do not need to be saved at all. You see, but God plays no favorites among the irreligious or the religious. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Because you place your trust in Jesus, you change. You're showing honor and peace. You're doing these things. And therefore, you have salvation. So God is perfect in his judgment. And last, his judgment is fair. Verses 12 through 16. And this text stresses that whether a person has access to God's word or not, they will be judged before the one true God by his deeds. And when he falls short, he's going to be lost. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. See, Paul is anticipating that some may think that he's unfair. That the Jews have had the advantage of God's written word, so Paul explains God's fairness. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is saying that while the Gentiles do not have the law written on their hearts, Nevertheless, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. They, it is, they know the moral standard of God. And with incredible fairness, God judges those lacking God's word by how well they live according to the sense of right and wrong in their inner hearts. Swedish scholar Anders Nygren writes that the heathen's conscience stands as an objective witness showing that he actually knew what he did wrong. In other words, God is 100% fair. So what does this mean? What does this teaching regarding the perfect judgment of God mean on those who believe and those who don't? Well, to Christians, it means that God knows everything. And one day, we will stand before him and give an account of our lives. And since God knows it all, 
And the truth is, for us, because he knows it all, we must pursue a radical honesty before God. Confess our inner spiritual sins, even the big ones. And ask God for his help. Cast ourselves at the foot of the cross. Ask his forgiveness. Reject rationalizing. Reject moralizing. And pray specifically and honestly for deliverance and grace. And you know what Jesus says? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who don't believe must realize that if they do not have the righteousness of Christ through faith, their sins are yet upon them, and yet God will judge them fairly. You can't say, I'm just made that way. You can't say, everyone's doing it. You can't say, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Right, Lord? It's not going to cut it. For Paul says in verse 16, On that day when, according to my gospel, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, the day is coming, and the best thing is to settle out of court while you can. Jesus said in John 8, 24, If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. But that same John wrote earlier in John's gospel, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you settled? That's the important thing for each and every one of us. It's the greatest heresy of all if I could somehow be good enough, do enough works long enough that I somehow might please God who made me. The fact is you can't, and that's where God's grace comes in. Grace is what God does for us that we don't deserve. And we're unable to repay it, and it's God's unmerited favor upon us. Like the irreligious son who received it, took the coat, took the ring, took the shoes, and went into the party, but the elder brother wouldn't. Notice that story doesn't finish. Jesus never concludes the story. I think that's because it's ongoing, and we need to respond. So there, friends, let us, let us just throw ourselves in the mercy of God. Thank God Jesus has come for us. And let's allow us and our ministry to the West Shore be that non-judgmental kind, loving people as God has loved us so that we can demonstrate the love of God, not like the judgmentalists. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word sets us straight because you know us. And your, your thoughts are precious, O oh God, as your psalmist said. Your, your, your thoughts are vast. And Lord, if we could count them, they'd be more than the sand. And we're with you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to just do this self-examination. And to make sure that before you, we're, we're just throwing ourselves to the mercy through Jesus Christ. Spur us on, Holy Spirit, that we would make sure that uh, we would not be uh, the moralizers of our day and recognizing before you that we have nothing in ourselves but nothing but the clothed righteousness of Christ. 
And we thank you that in Jesus, because we place our trust in you, O oh Lord, we can live. We pray that you would help us to, to live such lives of change because we get it. We thank you for your grace and that we would be, a, as this cold water has been splashed on our face this morning, help us to awaken and rejoice because we're your children, because of what you have done. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.